We are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you're new with us, basically that's the, that's the standard practice of what we do, is we just march through a book of the Bible, one passage at a time. And so, Lord willing, next week we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at verses 2 through 16, which I'm sure will be a very fun passage to look at. But this week we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're looking at verses 23 through the first verse in chapter 11. Now, if you are using one of the dark blue provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 958. 958. And if you don't have a Bible, then just consider that our gift to you. You're welcome to take that Bible, and we, we pray that you'll read it and meditate on what's in there. And as you're looking for that, um, just a reminder that when you see the big numbers, those are going to be the chapters. Little numbers are going to be the verses. So when I say verse 23, look for the little number there, and you'll be able to know where we are. Let's read that, and then we'll pray and dive into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. This is what Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which because of that for which I give thanks. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to still our hearts this morning. Lord, we are really grateful for the gift that it is to be able to gather in this place and to be able to sing songs of praise to you, to be reminded of the ways that we have fallen, to be reminded of the grace that is assured to us through your word. Lord, as we look at this passage, we pray that you would remind us even more so of the goodness of the gospel. Remind us more so of what Christ has done for us, for all those who repent and believe. Lord, we pray for those who are in our church. We pray specifically of, for the singles. Lord, we pray that during this season of their life that they would use it to magnify your name, that they'd be intentional with it, would not wish it away. Lord, we pray for those who are married, that you would strengthen marriages in this church. Lord, for those who are in a difficult marriage right now, we pray for specific strength for them, that you would give them endurance that they would trust you. They would continue to seek faithfulness, even in the difficult circumstance that they may be in. Lord, we pray for our community. We are grateful to be here in Westerville, but Lord, we pray that every person in Westerville would have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us be intentional in our proclamation of your word. We pray that we would be missionally engaged. 
that we would find ways in our workplaces, we would find ways with our family, with our friends, to share the good news of the gospel. Lord, we're grateful that we're not the only church doing this here in Westworld. We think specifically of Cornerstone Community Church. We pray that they would be faithful. They would hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints. Lord, they would not stray from it, but they would proclaim it with boldness. Lord, we're grateful for Crosspoint Church and their bold proclamation of the gospel. We pray that you would bless them. And now, Lord, as we think about those who you have placed over us here in Westerville, think of Mayor Diane Conley. We pray that you would give her wisdom when it comes to ruling. We pray that she would do so in a way that magnifies Christ. We pray, Lord, for her salvation, that she would know you if she doesn't already. Lord, we pray for the nation of Algeria and their president, Tabun, Lord, that he would seek your glory. Pray for Andorra and the Prime Minister Zamora, Lord, that these nations would seek to magnify Christ, that they would bend the knee to Christ. Lord, we are grateful for your kingdom, that it is growing. And God, we do pray uh, that as we proclaim your word this morning, that your kingdom would grow even more, that people would go from death to life, that they would repent and believe the gospel. And those who are already in your kingdom, Lord, they'd be strengthened and edified by what your word says. Help me, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, one of the things that Danielle and I particularly like to do is watch movies when you have Little kids running around, one of the best things is just to be able to sit down and not have to worry about things being broken or kids getting in fights. And so one of our favorite things to do is just, when it's just the two of us, just watch a movie. And some of the best movies um, that are out there that we tend to enjoy are the, the classics. Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. We, I just had the, the girls watch um, Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just the other day. And it's trying to show them the parallels. Like, hey, Aslan, he's really doing something wonderful here. It's kind of like someone else that we talk about, right? And what we see is that as we see some of these great movies, like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or, or Harry Potter, or just recently, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I loved watching that during Christmas season. One of the things that we appreciate about these movies is that we see individuals putting aside their self-interest for the sake of others and for the greater good. Now, that is something that we as a people just naturally gravitate to. We appreciate it when people are willing to lay down their own self-interest for the sake of someone else and for the sake of the greater good. Now, today, we, we still value that, but the, this idea of selflessness is being a little bit combated, some may say a lot combated, by this competing idea of living your truth. And don't let anybody tell you that you can't do what you want to do. That's borderline hate speech. But the theme of this passage, the theme of this whole book of 1 Corinthians, is unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage lays out that one of the, the best ways to protect unity in the Lord Jesus Christ is by laying aside your own self-interest for the sake of others and for the sake of the greater good. So as we look at this passage, the, the main thrust that Paul is getting at as he's writing to these Corinthians is that when we lay down our Christian rights for the sake of others, God is glorified and the gospel goes forward. When we lay down our Christian rights for the sake of others, God is glorified and the gospel goes forward. So just to catch everybody up in terms of what's going on here, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He had 
gone there. He had proclaimed the gospel. People had repented and believed, and so the church was born. And so he had moved on from Corinth, and then he wrote to them just to check in, and he got a disturbing report. And so then he writes to them again. That's what we have here. There's kind of like a zero Corinthians where he wrote to check in. He got a disturbing report from Chloe's people, and then he also got a response from the Corinthians, and he addresses both of those here in this letter of 1 Corinthians. The first six chapters are when he's addressing the, the report from Chloe's people. And then chapter 7 through 16 is when he is addressing the questions that the Corinthian church wrote back to him. So some of the issues that we have seen already to date in the first 10 chapters have been unbiblical divisions in the church. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. The church was tolerating sexual immorality. They weren't addressing it. The church was uh, taking each other to court. In the public square, there were lawsuits within the church that were taking before non-believers. They were excusing sexual immorality because it occurred outside the body. They said, hey, the Lord's only concerned about what's inward, the soul, and so therefore what happens outside of my body, he's not concerned with. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. There was confusion around marriage and confusion around singleness. And then in chapters 8 through 10, which we've been going over in recent weeks, Paul is getting at this idea that the Corinthians were prioritizing their own rights over one another. And he's been making this argument from chapter 8 to chapter 9 to chapter 10 all the way to the first verse of chapter 11 where he concludes it. So he's been doing this, making this point throughout these three chapters. Chapter 8 talks about food, sacrifice to idols. Chapter 9 talks about how he has laid aside some of his own rights for the sake of the gospel going forward. In chapter 10 he picks up this idea again of, of food. And so as he's laying out this argument, this three chapter long argument, he summarizes it here, in verses 23 through 11.1. And you can see the way that he summarizes it. In your bulletin, there are three points, and the points are this. We see the principle established, the principle applied, and the principle's effect. The principle established, the principle applied, and the principle's effect. And so if you look, verses 23 to 24, let's look at the principle established. So Paul says in verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, which, which is a very similar phrase. He said it previously in chapter 6, and he's, he's very likely uh, quoting either a common phrase that the Corinthians held, or he's quoting something that the Corinthians wrote to him. One or the other, commentators are split on it, whether it's, it's a common phrase that Paul knew of in Corinth, or if it was something that the Corinthians wrote to him, saying, hey, all things are lawful, right? All things are lawful. And he's comment or he's quoting what they have said to him. But it's the same phrase that we saw in chapter 6 verse 12 where he says all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything. Now we clarified in chapter 6 and it's worth clarifying again that when he says all things he's not referring to sinful things. So we still are under God's moral law and we still are called to obey what he commands us. However when it comes to things of the conscience those things, he says, you're free. So for instance, here in America, we say it's a free country, but we recognize that it's not, we can't actually do whatever we want. There are speed limits on the road, and if you exceed them, then you will get a ticket, as I have experienced. You can't go on an airplane and yell bomb. It's not going to go well for you. You can't go into Kroger and get a bag full of groceries and just walk out without paying. You can't decide this year 
that you're just not going to pay your taxes. I just don't feel like it this year. You know, I only do it on even years. It's 2023 and 2024, I'll get back to it. You just can't, you can't do that. So it is a free country, but we're not free to do whatever we want. So Paul says all things are lawful. It doesn't mean that we get to do sinful things, things that God has prohibited. But in matters of conscience, we are free. Romans 14, 23 puts it this way. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Talking about food again. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul's arguing, hey, if Scripture's not clear on it here, if the, the Lord hasn't made it, it known clearly, there's not clear implications or clear commands, then you're free. Which we saw in chapter 6. However, chapter 6 and chapter 10, although there's similar phrases, there is a difference. And we, and we need to be aware of what the difference is. So in chapter 6, the focus is on the individual. So he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Chapter 6 is focusing on the individual. All things are lawful, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. No, no thing is going to hold sway over me other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 10, the focus is on others. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. Chapter 6, focuses on individual. Chapter 10 here, the focus is on others. And he further establishes that in verse 24, if you look there. It says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So if you're a Christian this morning, what Paul's getting at is that you're no longer on your own island. Rather than being on a deserted island by yourself where you only have to care for yourself, you've now been brought into the kingdom of God and made a citizen of that kingdom. You have other citizens that you need to be aware of and look out for the well-being of. We have a responsibility to care for others. Which, if we consider Christ, who is our greatest example in this, we see that he did not seek his own good. But he did seek the good of others by laying aside his rights and going to the cross to pay for the sin of all those who repent and believe on him so that we can inherit his righteousness and he can take our sin. We can be made right with God again. I mean, consider some of the New Testament language here that we see throughout the New Testament of what, how, how they describe Christians. Just a, a small list here that we've been adopted into the family of God. You're no longer on your own. You've been adopted into the family of God. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are members of the body of Christ. You are members of the household of God. You are citizens of heaven. And so just because something is permitted, Paul is getting at, doesn't mean that we should just go ahead and do it. He doesn't say consider what is helpful. Christians seek the betterment of others, not just themselves. As a Christian, your actions affect other people, whether you recognize it or not. Don't overlook your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is just one of the importances of church membership. We, we push church membership here because we think the Bible makes it clear that you, when you become a Christian, you are not to, to walk alone. And so if you're a member here, you have a responsibility for the other members that are here. It doesn't, doesn't end there, but they're your primary responsibility. As Christians, we connect together. We walk together. It's the importance of gathering each week because we recognize that we are in need of reminding of the gospel. And we need one another to do that. 
to intentionally neglect gathering with the family of God, with the church, is failing to love your brothers and sisters. Because it's not just about what you can get when you come. It's about what you can also give to others. Ways that you can encourage them, just a passing word. Ways that you do encourage them when people recognize what's going on in your life and you still sing, it is well with my soul. When you still sing, all glory be to Christ. You're encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ just by showing up. And so two questions to ask when when you as a Christian are making decisions. The first one is this. Does God's word permit this? This thing that you're thinking about doing. Does God's word permit it? If yes, then the follow-up question is, will this build up others? Especially the Christians that are around me. So does God's word permit this? And just because the answer may be yes doesn't mean you should do it. Paul is laying out the principle here. He's establishing it. That's not the, the, first question, the only question that you ask. He's also ask, will this benefit others? Will this build up others? And to help us understand this, we now see the principle applied. Our second point there, verses 25 through 31. So Paul offers two examples. So he establishes the principle to start off with. And then he offers examples of how we take this principle and apply it. Now remember, he's summarizing his argument from chapters 8 through 10 in the first verse of chapter 11. So he's coming to the end, and now he's, he's trying to really help them understand, hey, this is the, this is the thing you've got to know, and here it is in action. Here, here's a quick two examples. The first one is an individual example, when the individual goes to the meat market. The second one is with others, when you are invited to a dinner and there are others involved. So let's look at that first one, verses 25 through 26. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, something you need to understand about Corinth, as we've talked about in the past, and we'll just bring up again, is that it was a very pagan city. There were a lot of religious practices that went on. It was a port city, so there's a lot of transients, people were coming in and out. And, and, and the example that we continue to point out is something like New York City. There's a lot of transients, and, and so you can pretty much find whatever you want. And in Corinth, there were all kinds of religious practices. And so what would happen is that these various different religious practices would sacrifice meat to these false gods. And then the meat that was left over, they would take to the meat market. Might as well not waste it. Let's, let's sell it at a discounted price so that we can at least get something from it. And so people who, especially Christians, who are trying to be frugal and are trying to be good stewards of the money that God had given them, they're trying to say, hey, I, I can buy this meat. And I'm being a good steward of my money. And Paul says, yeah, like, like buy it. There, there's no true, true God other than the Lord himself. And so you're welcome. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's. He's the only true God. And everything in the world is his. No need to raise any questions over this. But then he gives a second example. That is not just about the individual, but it's now also about others. So verse 27, he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you. So you get invited to a dinner. We don't know if this dinner is at a home or if it's in a public space. But what we do know is that there are others involved now. It's not just you doing your grocery shopping, trying to figure out what you're going to eat throughout the week. It's now others are involved. So someone at the dinner, he points out, we don't know if it's a Christian or a non-Christian, but someone at the dinner tells the person, hey, this, this meat, it was, it was sacrificed. 
as an offering to a false god. So this person maybe is being respectful, recognizes, hey, this, this person over here is a Christian. I know that they are kind of sensitive about some of that stuff. I'm just going to let them know that as the meat comes by, like, hey, this was offered in sacrifice. So Paul says, if that's the case, don't eat it. For the sake of that individual's conscience. So Corinthian dinners had, had multiple courses, so it wouldn't have been a huge faux pas to let that go by and just get other food. But even if it was, the principle still remains. He says, don't eat it for the sake of that individual's conscience. So the question is, why not? And Paul addresses this. He says, do not eat it, this is verse 28, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So there's, there's a scenario in which our actions can actually hinder the conscience and can hinder the faith of those who are on looking what we are doing. He says, look, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And that, that's not what Paul is advocating for. Like, hey, if there's anybody in the room that ever has any kind of quip, you, sh- you shouldn't do this particular thing. But he's saying, hey, if what you are about to do hinders the gospel from going forward because of this person's conscience, then don't do it for the sake of that person. We want the gospel to go forward. And then he summarizes the principle in verse 31. So he points out, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Paul is advocating for us to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel going forward. And when we do that, when we lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel going forward, God is glorified. God is made much of. It shows that he is all satisfying rather than this particular thing that we're choosing to lay down. And God's glory, as Paul advocates, should be front of mind. So you might not be in a situation where you are at someone's house and someone passes you some steak or a burger and whispers in your ear, this was, this was sacrifice. Like it, you just might not be in that situation. You probably aren't. Okay, But there are situations, as you go about your week and as you go about your year, where the actions that you take could hinder someone else's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it's not something the Lord has commanded that you, that you must do, if it's a sake of conscience, then it would be better for you to lay that thing down for the sake of that person. God's glory and the gospel going forward should always be front of mind, whether we are eating or drinking, whether we're working or resting, whether we're in a group setting or we are alone, training or studying whether we're rejoicing or weeping, whether we're reading or watching, speaking or listening, whether you're changing your third diaper within the same hour or you're in a house that has no kids and you're void of all kinds of chaos. Regardless of the situation that you are in, we are called, whatever we do, to seek the glory of God, to do it all to the glory of God, to seek His glory first. So if you're a Christian... If you're not a Christian here, thank you for being here. We hope that you continue to to come back. But if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, the natural question is, okay, that's great, but how do I actually do that? How do I give glory to God when I'm changing a diaper? How do I give glory to God when I'm watching a show? How do I give glory to God in these very situations that you just laid out? I'd submit to you that we give glory to God when our whole person, our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. So not just our actions, but our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions 
reflect Christ as all-satisfying. When our thoughts, emotions, and actions reflect Christ as all-satisfying. So let's look at thoughts. Natural question is, is, what is your mind set on? What is it that when you have free time, what, what does your mind go to? Coaches, whether you played sports, or whether you're getting uh, life coaching, or whether you're getting coaching well on exam, whatever it is, they, they consistently will push this idea of mindset. And they're on to something. If you're in the right mindset, you can perform better. They're, they're on to something. Now, Christians live more faithfully and enjoy God more when they fix their mind, when they set their mind on Him. And so how do we do that? It's, it's far more simple than what we tend to think. But it's reading God's Word and then thinking about what you read. Reading God's Word and meditating on it, considering it, praying through it. Think about it throughout the day. Maybe it's just one verse that you are thinking about throughout the day. Maybe you read a chapter. Maybe you read two chapters. Maybe you read a paragraph. Then find one verse or one passage there just to meditate on throughout the day. To reorient your mind. Back to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we mentioned this last week, but it's worth mentioning again. Paul advocates to the Corinthians when he writes to them again. He says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. When Paul is writing to the Romans in chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the question for us is, is what thoughts have run free that need to be brought captive? What thoughts need to be renewed by God's word? When it comes to our emotions, Augustine has a great quote on this. He says, we do not walk to God with the feet of our body, nor would wings, if we had them, carry us to him. But we go to him by the affections of our soul. So something that we consistently need to be asking ourselves is what is it that stirs my affections for Christ? What things make me love God more? It's like a campfire ember. You ever been camping? Our family loves to go camping. We haven't been able to as much just with kids, but sometimes we'll go in the backyard and we'll do a little campfire. And if the fire begins to go out and you want to restart that fire, you find an ember little coal that's still burning, and get some more kindling. And you just have to blow on that and try, try to get the fire going. And you can get the fire back up again. What is it in your life that serves as kindling for stirring up your affections for Christ? Maybe it's conversations with certain people. Some people just bring that out of you. Some people can just articulate it in a way that makes you, man, every time I talk to that individual, I'm just so encouraged. I love the Lord more. Maybe it's good hymns, good songs. Maybe it's reading books or articles or devotionals. Something I want to put for you, Table Talk. This is a is Table Talk magazine. It's a little thing. There's articles in here, and it's a daily devotional for the month. We put, we put them out there. They're free to take. Take one. Enjoy it. If, if it's not the same month, so this is January, but you don't have to stay in January. You're welcome to take other, other months, and you'll be able to be edified by the articles in there and by the, the daily devotionals that are in there. I, I love that magazine. It's very helpful. And so if you're looking for something to stir your affections for Christ, read good, good material. And then on, on the other side of that, what things suffocate, like a wet blanket, what things suffocate our desire for Christ and end up actually increasing our love for the world? The things that 
that kindle our affection for Christ. We should get more of those. Try to, try to put more of those into your schedule. Get coffee with people that, that build you up. Read more good things and, and get rid of the things that are, are putting out your desire for Christ. And the things that end up suffocating our desire for Christ, we need to, to remove those things. Intentionally identify and remove those things from our lives. First John 2 Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Does our affections increase for the world? That should be a red flag to us. We should remove the things that are causing our affections to increase for the world and input more of the things that cause our affections to increase for Christ. And then when it comes to our actions, this is perhaps the lowest hanging fruit because this is the first thing that our minds go to, but we should prioritize others over our own liberties, over our, over our own rights. We should be willing to lay aside our Christian rights for the sake of the gospel going forward. Al Mohler summarizes it this way. He says, we glorify God when we feel and think and act in a way that makes much of God, in a way that shows he is supremely great and good and all-satisfying. So when it comes to our thoughts, when it comes to our emotions, when it comes to our actions, the way that we glorify God is by having all three of those categories operating in a way that shows that Christ is all-satisfying. Christ is better than that particular thing that we're considering laying down. And when we do that, we'll actually begin to notice the principle's effect. Start your third point in your bulletin. So look at verse 32. Paul says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many. So look, believe it or not, I know Paul writes and he, he corrects a lot of things in the letters that he sends out. But Paul's actually not that combative of a guy. He's saying, hey look, I'm trying to, to give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. I'm trying to, to please everyone. And he's encouraging the Corinthians to be mindful of those groups of people, the Jews, the Greeks, and the church of God. It says give no offense. And that, that Greek word just means don't cause them to stumble. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. So a question that comes up is, so does that mean that Christians are just perpetual people pleasers? Is that what we're supposed to be? Well, Paul answers his own question. He's not advocating for people pleasing. We see this in Galatians when he's writing to, to the Christians in Galatia. He says, in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So if you are a people pleaser, if, if man is your ultimate king, then you're not following King Jesus. He says, hey, look, like, don't, be, don't be people pleasers, but don't try to intentionally cause these groups of people to stumble. If there are ways that you can set aside things for the sake of them hearing the gospel, then... then be willing to do that. He's not advocating for people-pleasing. Instead, he's advocating for selflessness, which he says in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing, nothing, do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So it's not please others rather than God. Paul's advocating Please others rather than self. God remains your highest authority. But lay down your 
your privileges, your rights, your desires for the sake of others. Insofar as those things that you're laying down are not clear commands from God. Remember, we're talking about things of conscience here. And the effect that that has long-term is more fruitful evangelism. Look at the end of verse 33. He says all this stuff. He says, Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul does this for the sake of more fruitful evangelism. Evangelism is most effective when both our words and our actions are consistent. When we proclaim a God who entered humanity and gave himself for their good, a God who, who did not need to do such a thing, who lived a perfect life and gave it so that we who were imperfect could be made right with him. When we talk about what he has done by coming down and laying himself down for the sake of others, when we fail to live in a similar way, it hampers and diminishes our evangelism. And then Paul concludes in verse 1 of chapter 11, this argument that he began in chapter 8, he finally concludes it by simply saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was willing to lay down his rights. We saw this in chapter 9. He spent ample amount of time talking about the rights that he had but chose to lay down for the sake of the gospel going forward. He gave us an example to follow, and then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so we are called, like Paul, to imitate Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by prioritizing the gospel and others over ourselves. And when that happens, we begin to to see Christ more clearly magnified and more people being drawn to him. Because look, the wages of sin is death. And we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all chosen ourselves over others. We've all chosen ourselves over God. We've rebelled against him and his judgment. It awaits us. Death has a claim on all of us. The wages of sin is death. We've all sinned, so therefore death has a claim on all of us. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Death has had a claim on you. But if you are in Christ, he's made you alive. And you've been saved. Saved from judgment and wrath. Saved from eternal punishment. That's only for those who repent and believe the gospel. It's not for all people. It's extended to all. We, we ask that you would repent and believe if you haven't already. So that you may be saved from eternal punishment. And how, why is this possible? It's because the Son of God entered humanity. It's because the Son of God perfectly sought God's glory over his own rights and liberties. We're called to, in all things, do all things to the glory of God. Only one person has done that perfectly, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, and he traded that robe of righteousness for our filthy rags of sin. He paid our penalty so that we could receive his reward, the reward that perfect righteousness affords. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, either sin is lying on your shoulders or it is lying on Christ. 
the Lamb of God. And if it is resting on Christ, then you are free. So when we lay down our Christian rights for the sake of others, the gospel goes forward, and God is glorified. And so non-Christian, we are grateful that you're here. We pray that you will trust Christ today. That you will rest entirely on what he has done, not on the things that you do or have done, or even will do. You're resting entirely on Christ's finished work for your sin to be removed and for a righteousness to be given to you freely. And if you're a Christian, I encourage you to do all things to the glory of God by prioritizing gospel advancement over your own freedoms. You see Christ doing this on our behalf. Let's be imitators of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Jesus, thank you for giving up your own self-interest so that we may be brought to the Father through your blood. And Lord, we're getting ready to remember that now in the Lord's Supper. We pray that we would be encouraged by what you have accomplished, that we would look to you, and that we would be so satisfied in Christ as we go about this week that we would gladly lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel going forward and more people being able to enjoy the Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.